Good morning. It's good to see all of you again. Given the weightiness of the week, I do confess that I come into your midst today with a heavy heart. It's good to see that Alex will be here next week. Alex Watlington, I must say, has so kindly and sweetly uh, pastored me through this ordeal with John. Uh, He was the first to call me on Thursday afternoon after John passed and uh, pray with me over the phone. And his ministry to me in recent weeks and months has meant the world, and I'm glad that he will be with you. Let's direct our attention to Psalm 19 as we continue our study of the Psalms. These are going to be probably among the more familiar to you in the Psalter thus far, along with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 16. We have sung these words in many forms over the years in the Christian church. I found out this week there are upwards of seven or eight hymns based on this psalm, two of which we've already sung here. That beautiful melody that we sang moments ago was a staple in RUF when I was a student. I trust that it still is. But anyway, these are appropriate words to encourage us and to prepare us to come to the Lord's table. So let's give attention now to the Word of God, Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. And his truth before all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Let's look to him in prayer once again. Lord, we are grateful for who you are, your power to save, your great grace that comes upon us moment by moment, that keeps us in this life and that readies us for the next. 
We ask that by Your Spirit You would come and You would know us this day and that You would impress deeply upon our hearts that which You have for us in Your Word and prepare us to sup with You that we may go refreshed and renewed, rejoicing in Your favor and equipped for every good work to which You will call us. This we ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. It's hard to believe that it has been uh, 24 years yesterday that I was examined for ordination by the Pacific Presbytery. I had just been called right out of seminary to serve the New Life Presbyterian Church in Manhattan Beach, and I had been flown out to meet with the Credentials Committee in the afternoon and then to stand before the Presbytery of the Whole on the floor at Valley Presbyterian Church that evening. And as you can imagine, that was a long and exhausting day. And it was along about 9, 9.30 in the evening, and we were wrapping up, and the last section of the exam was in English Bible. Now the moderator, noting the hour, called for one more question and then turned to me and asked me to keep the answer succinct. And that's a welcome statement during a trial. Give a brief answer. You know, that always works. And the pastor of Church in the Canyon, PCA, in Calabasas, California, a fellow by the name of Randy Martin, asks me, what is Revelation about, meaning the book? And I gave a tight answer, as best I recall, something to the effect that it is an apocalyptic account of Jesus' victory for his people and the ultimate triumph through his work of good over evil. And uh, that seemed to be to the satisfaction of not only Randy, but the body. And we wrapped up. I passed. And as the rest, as they say, is history. And here we are. I was thinking about that as I was studying Psalm 19 in recent days. And it occurs to me that Psalm 19 does just that. It shows us what Revelation is about. Not the book of Revelation, but Revelation that is divine disclosure, that is God's self-display through all that He has spoken into existence by the word of His power, conjoined to His unveiled truth and His revealing how it is that He is intent upon from all eternity past redeeming for Himself a people and how it is that the written word that we have bound and in front of us in the Holy Scriptures is that very truth uh, that we need to know who He is, to know who we are before Him, how we are to think of Him, how we are to serve Him, and what He requires of men. And we have both of those in this psalm, what we historically have referred to as general or natural revelation and special revelation. And at the end of the psalm, as you may have already discerned, what you have is a showcasing of what the proper response of these twin aspects of Revelation ought to be on the part of the believing heart. God is speaking in a way that we cannot hear, but we know Him, and He is rendered known throughout the universe. We have Him speaking in a way that can be vocally and audibly heard, that directs us to Himself ultimately through Jesus Christ, And in the confluence of these two things, how then ought we to react? What ought to be the disposition of our hearts as we respond to Him? What should our souls echo back? That is Psalm 
19. And there are three points that I would like to make with you this morning. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we have that revelation is about God's tacit establishing, God's tacit creation, that is, establishing joy. God's tacit creation establishing joy. David tells us that the heavens declare, or literally they keep on reciting the glory of God. And that word glory there is referring to the the honorability of God and the weightiness of God, the highness of God, Him being above all other things, Him being the ultimate one, and it captures the idea of Him being the most esteemed. And all He has made, all He has spoken into existence, all that He has created, and all that He continues to create speaks to who He is. It reveals, it goes on proclaiming. This is not something that is just revealed initially, but God's glory is revealed perpetually. It is declared in all of His craftsmanship continually spread abroad in his creation and speaks to his greatness. The idea here of pouring out in verse 2a can even be likened to that of of a volcano spewing or erupting. One of my Old Testament professors at RTS, Dr. Alan Harmon, used to say, the creation can't contain itself, but in every aspect bursts forth with the greatness of God. And you know, we're ready in our appointment of how it is that, and our realization and our highlighting of how it is that the pagan is rendered without excuse, but we need to stop and think about how it is only the regenerated heart and the renewed mind that can look upon creation and get the enjoyment out of it for which it was all given. Now, as we move into verse 3, you'll see something of a a paradox. The Hebrew gets a little bit complicated here. From verse 2b, actually through verse 4a, uh, we would have, if we were in the New Testament and dealing with Greek, what we would call a chiastic structure. We don't have that in Hebrew, but there's the same kind of, of form here. And it seems, upon first reading, as contradictory. In verse 2a, uh, for example, you have the creation pouring out speech. Then in 3a, there is no speech. Then in 3b, there is no voice heard. And then in 4a, there is a voice that goes throughout all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. And because there's no negative there, the implication is that it is heard. So you have speech, no speech, no voice, and then speech again. And verse 3 is particularly tricky. There is no speech, nor are these nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It almost sounds in the English as if there are too many negatives. This is very, very difficult. I think the best translation is there is no speech and there are no words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, the hoos there in verse 3b uh, in the ESV from which I'm reading, that really refers collectively to all creation and how it is that it cannot be heard. So what's the deal here? Is God speaking or is He not? The answer is yes. We have here what might be referred to as God's non-verbal communication. 
It's the body language of creation. You know how communication experts are always telling us that 80 or 90% of what we communicate is nonverbal and how it is that a glance or an expression or a particular movement or touch can communicate instantaneously what it might take many, many words to equally convey verbally. That's what we have here. We have a deafening silence that comes forth with, with a kind of audibility that is beyond anything else. And it is impossible for the Creator of all things not to be known in all of His glory and transcendent power. And then I would suggest to you that in verses 4b through 6, the first three and a half verses get an extra infusion of meaning. This is fascinating. Notice how David continues. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Continuing through verse 6, what's he doing? He's extracting the sun as the created entity whereby to draw a, so a sharp distinction between creator and creation. In them, in the created order, he set a tent. It's as if He's given a tabernacle for, as is his one example here, one heavenly body. And that heavenly body moves throughout. Verse 6, rising from one end of the heavens and continuing on its circuit to the other, serving its purpose. There is no way in which anything over which it moves does not know its function. That is to provide heat, as he cites here, but illumination and other things. And he likens it to to a bridegroom leaving his chamber, picture a young man who is coming to marriage or a young strapping runner about to go on the course of a race. Why all of this frolicsome and playful language to describe creation here before the Creator? It is in order, you see, that in David's day when so many cited the sun as their God, that the Israelites might know that the sun can never be deified for them. This was common. This was in Egypt. This was throughout Mesopotamia. Sun God. That, that's all you heard. And the power of the sun. And what David is saying here is, no, you have to take every created being off the deity hook and, and free them. And when we read these words, we have the sun that we see every day playing this frolicsome language, rejoicing before its Creator as if to celebrate the fact that it is not God, but He is. And did that comfort you when you were a new Christian? We, we joke about that. How many times have the words left our lips? There is a God and we're not He. He's God and we're not. And that ought to comfort you. That liberates you. That that frees you to rejoice and to come before your God and just simply do your business before Him, leaving all things to Him because it is He who has made us and not we ourselves. This is the established joy that you find in the tacit creation and not only can you skip through this life with it gleefully, 
entrusting all things to him. But even in your waning hours on the earth, you will yet find comfort in the fact that there is a creator and you are not he. He has made you a little lower than the angels and he has caused you to run and to celebrate him. And if he is that far above you, then he is perfectly capable of meeting all of your needs. I'm a fan, as you know, of Charles Simeon, the minister of Cambridge, England, in the late 19th century and 19th century. And on his deathbed, he declared this with a bright smile, what do you think especially gives me comfort at this time? The creation. Did Jehovah create the world or did I? I think He did. And now if He made the world, He can sufficiently take care of me. That's why days later, within hours of his death, when he was asked, Brother Simeon, what are you thinking now? He replied, I'm not thinking. I am enjoying. That, beloved, is the, the established joy that is yours in the deafening silence that screams to you, God is God and there is no other. Now, secondly, we come upon God's trustworthy speech that induces desire, or God's trustworthy statements that induce desire. I like that term, trustworthy statements. It's Pauline. You know, Paul issued five of those to Timothy and Titus in the pastoral epistles. And the whole of Scripture, again, it's God's speech. It's God's word spoken to those whom under the inspiration of the Spirit wrote it down for us. And, and it speaks to us. So he's moving here from the general into the specific. Someone a couple of weeks ago on Reformation Lord's Day sent me a list of Martin Luther quotes, and I loved it, and I knew most of them. But one of my favorite Luther quotes is, if you want to hear the voice of God, take his word and read it aloud. He is speaking. There is vocality to this. We hear from God as we vocalize his words. And you'll notice that in verse 7, A, you have Lord, capital L-O-R-D. There's been a shifting here, I want you to see, from the general word L that we've seen in previous psalms at certain points back to Yahweh. So he's going again from general to personal. He's, he's moving back into specific language entailing God's covenant faithfulness. And he is giving you what you need. He's giving me what I need if we are to walk before Him and to be established in Him. God is moving from His own transcendence as David composes the psalm to His eminence, to His extension specifically to His people and what He provides for them. Now, he uses six parallels in verses 6 through 9, and then he conjoins to that something that is very important in verse 10. We'll get to that. But six parallels are found uh, in verses 7 through 9. We have law, testimony, or commandments, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules, or ordinances. 
and then six corresponding equalizing attributes, respectively, perfect, sure, or trustworthy, right, pure, clean, and true, or sure. That is, as the former of these, they are also the latter, and then each of these parallels a description of what the Scripture does as a result of there being each of these things first stated. And I want to take a few minutes to walk through each of these because they're so rich. So bear with me, again, bearing in mind that what God is giving to us are statements that can be banked upon fully, totally trustworthy, will not fail us, as we've seen before from our studies of, for example, 1 Timothy 1.15 and the, the trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save, of whom Paul was the chief. These kinds of axiomatic, immovable, established truths and the yearning, the desire, which is the word found in verse 10, of which we just sung moments ago. There's a longing to have these words, these specific and special words, driven deeper into our souls to consume them. First of all, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word for law here is the Torah, which conveys not just the table of the law, but all of God's instructions as it is revealed in His Word. This would be a great proof text to begin an argument for inerrancy. Psalm 19.7a. It is flawless. The law is perfect and it can revive. It can restore. This is a benefit for God's covenant people. What can His Word do? It can refuel you. It can establish life in you again. Reviving the soul. I think some of us within the Reformed and Presbyterian community have made the habit over the last generation or so of sort of downplaying uh, revival, uh, thinking primarily of revivalism. And ah, we kind of scoff at the sign outside the church there's going to be a revival happening here Wednesday night. Oh, really? We say, how do you know that? We want a reformation. We want things to change from top to bottom. Well, friends, revival must precede reformation. You're never going to reform anything until there is revival. What is revival? It's viving again, being revived. Vivification is life. Mortification is death. So when you and I are revived, we are brought back around again out of deadness into life and renewed in the truth. Brought back to our first love and reestablished before the God. It revives the soul. It restores the soul. It keeps you in moments of despair from thinking that you are going to go out of your mind. It, it, it holds you that you cannot fall. And it, it breathes new life into you. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony or commandments, this probably is referring here principally to the table of the law, uh, but the word here, the root word, actually means to warn. And you'll see that there's a theme here. Making wise or making warning in wisdom the simple. We'll get again to the word warned in in verse 11a. But... uh, the testimony of the Lord, the law of the, Lord, the the moral law of the Lord is certain, and it warns the simple. This word "simple" actually would be the equivalent in our modern parlance of a simpleton. You don't hear that word very often. 
But what David is, is really very kindly and gently saying here is that the law of the Lord being sure is something that comes to the one who doesn't have as much knowledge, the simpleton, and wakes him up and gives him that knowledge so that he does not fall prey to the foolish works that would ruin his life because of his ignorance. You ever wonder what that means, making wise the simple? Who's simple? The one lacking wisdom and knowledge. If we're honest, that's ourselves. And the testimony of the moral law, everything that is right comes to the simpleton and causes him to be wise and to be equipped for the things of this life that are difficult and to not succumb to his foolishness or anyone else's. Thirdly, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That is, what God has appointed to be kept, that, that which He desires in accord with all of His attributes, those things are right. Because they are His, they can in no way be wrong. And they bring rejoicing to those who are His. The precepts of the Lord, the, the requirements of the Lord, because they are righteous, they bring gladness to the heart of the believer. It's something the believer longs to fulfill. I've always appreciated the uh, testimony of Tim Tebow. Uh, and among other things, his always having spoken openly about how he is preserving himself sexually for marriage. And it takes a lot of boldness to say that in today's world. But I remember several years ago, Sharon Osbourne making a statement. It wasn't derogatory, but she said something to the effect of, oh, I really feel for this young man. He's young, he's in his prime. He's a lovely young man. He should just go out and have fun and, and live it up. But you see, that statement fails to understand that Mr. Tebow wants to do that because he's a Christian. Have you ever been chided by anyone for, for wanting to do something or not do something? And they, oh, you poor thing. You're so trapped in all of these rules and regulations. No, it's a delight. It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there's rejoicing in that for the one committed to it because they're gods. Fourthly, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. This is not different commands, but this speaks to the whole of what God's directives are, the sum total of what He commands to those who are His. And they... They enlighten the eyes. This is the same verbiage that we find, interestingly enough, in 1 Samuel 14, 29. Do you remember the story there about the Israelites are about to go to battle with the Philistines? And Jonathan, not having fallen privy to his fathers, having issued the, the fasting edict, don't, don't eat anything so as to be focused on really defeating these guys. Well, Jonathan moves in and, and sees some honey and takes some from the honeycomb and declares, my eyes have become bright. They've been enlightened because I have tasted of a little of this honey. It was a shot in the arm. It was an energy boost. And that's what David means here. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They're not unclean. And that's Levitical language. They meet the requirements of purity in every way. And they're your boost of energy they keep you going 
this has been a hard week and I felt like I had to slide in here this morning head first and try not to get dirt all over all of you. Truth is a shot in the arm at times like this. It is what keeps you going. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Uh, now this moves from, from the Lord uh, a little bit, shifts a little bit over to, to more of a response by the believer. Uh, fear is a slightly different attribute in the sense that it focuses not as much on God's Word as on the perspective and the mindset that the Word will produce within the believer things that are good and God-centered. Fearing God is a clean practice. Having an awareness of who He is and what He does. And trembling before Him. And again, remembering that He is God and you are not. If you fear God, if you are trusting Him, obeying Him, then you have a condition in which you will not fall, but you will stand. The fear of Him is clean and you'll endure. You'll keep going in His presence as acceptable as His grace in the estate of a healthy fear will keep operating within you and work in you that which will, is well-pleasing in His sight. And then finally, the sixth is the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The ordinances of God, that is, all of God's rulings or judgments, all that He sets up as a rule for His people, all this is why we refer to the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice. The rules of God are true. They cannot be false. They are totally righteous. And because God is a righteous God, they are utterly incapable of issuing any unrighteous dictate. So there is a synopsis of special revelation. And then David moves right in to expressing how it is that there should be a yearning, a longing for them, given their sweetness, gold and honey. Now, you couldn't find in David's day uh, two more apt metaphors. Gold, an element that is represented even in our minds today as being uh, the ultimate. Well... God's ways, His revelation, His law is to be desired more than that. And it's sweeter than honey. Isn't honey understood to be about the sweetest food in existence? Look at that language. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Oh, it's better than that. And, and what David is doing is giving you license to scarf the special revelation of God. He's saying, binge, eat this. Put everything else away and long and yearn for it in all of its superiority over everything else that you could have before you at your disposal. Lady Jane Grey was a great Bible reader and while her parents were away, she would remain at home studying its pages. Her friends were surprised and they inquired of her for this reason and she applied all amusements of other descriptions are but a shadow of the pleasure which I enjoy in reading this book. There is no more intimate description of anyone laying hold of truth. Do you remember Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 15, 16? He found the words of the Lord. And he ate them. 
Psalm 19, 7 through 10 calls for us to do the same. But finally, we see that Revelation is about God's thankful worshiper offering submission. His thankful worshiper or servant offering submission. David turns in in verse 11 and he begins to self-assess and he begins to offer worship to God and to turn himself Godward yet again, but to do so with an evaluation of his own heart. Verse 11, Moreover by them is your servant warned. And that that theme of of being warned, he, he could have said, Moreover by them is your servant encouraged, is your... A servant bolstered in the faith is your servant granted assurance and certainly all of those things are true but isn't it interesting how the first thing that comes forth from his heart is the idea of warning and and that's where the serious servant of Yahweh will position him or herself you'll be concerned first and foremost about what the special revelation guides you into with regard to escaping the wrath of God and to not coming under the dire consequences of sin, but to what find the great reward that there is in in keeping His commands, the, the, the prize, if you will, the benefit, going into an estate of saying, ah, and enjoying your God because by His grace you are in keeping with what He has instructed you to do. It's like Psalm 139, the Davidic internal assessment. And you'll notice there's a kind of deductive flow between verses 11 and 13. He begins first uh, in verse 12 with discernment of errors. Who can discern his errors? He's he's referring here to to secret sins or or misdeeds dark. You know, you and I are guilty of sins of which we're not even aware. So his first desire then is to have those expunged, to have there be an awareness of those things of which he is guilty that he, he doesn't even know about it. So they may be outed so that he may be right. He may be declared innocent from those hidden faults, he says. And then he moves into the ones we know about. He is so honest as to say, keep back your servant, verse 13, also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. So he moves from the sins he doesn't know about, which he knows are soul killing. He wants to be innocent from hidden faults. And then, yes, Lord, those sins that I know about, those sins that I love, those sins that I coddle, those besetting sins that are sweet to me, that I'm fascinated with, that I hold on to, and I know exactly what I'm doing when I decide to do them in your presence. Don't let them have dominion over me. You know what he's asking there? He's asking what you and I ought to be asking about the sins in our lives that we love. Don't let them bind me. So he goes from the unknown to the known. And then are you ready for this? Verse 13b, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Some translations say great rebellion. And there's a flow to this. He's moving towards something very dangerous. Sins he doesn't know about. Sins he's fully aware of. And then this is a a singular type of transgression. This is the sin. David is saying... Know me lest I commit the big one. And the big one is apostasy. The word here 
is actually a, a word translated elsewhere, the great trans, transgression or rebellion in the Old Testament, uh, speaking of adultery, which is the ultimate covenant faithlessness that man can conceive of. Don't let me turn my back on you, God. Now, again, we don't talk much about apostasy in the Reformed community because we have, we have assurance of our faith. We, we hold as well we should to the perseverance of the saints. If you've been born again, there is no way in which that can be undone. And that is true. Sadly with that, though, we fail to really go into a deeper understanding of our hearts. John MacArthur likes to tell people in defense of eternal security, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But you see that you would ought to frighten us. We shouldn't say, oh, well, that'll never happen to me. I'll never become an atheist like Billy Graham's first mentor did. Oh, I'll never do what Bart Ehrman did growing up in a Christian home in Kansas and now one of the most anti-Christian philosophy professors in the country at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'll never be Joshua Harris. I'll never write a book called Kissing, Dating, Goodbye and 20 years later Kiss the Faith Goodbye. That's a kind of haughtiness that ought to threaten us. What we ought to do when we see those things is say, eh, gods, that's me apart from the grace of the living God. And is it? Dr. Ralph Davis says this in his commentary on the Psalms. Don't think you're somehow immune to a great apostasy or rebellion. Don't tell yourself something really stupid like, well, David was an Old Testament believer and didn't have the clear assurance that I have and so worried himself unnecessarily about apostasy. That is not the Bible's way. For if the believer does not commit apostasy, it is precisely because he fears it. And he cries out to God to save him from it. It is alarm over apostasy that God uses to keep you from it. And if you think it cannot touch you, if you suppose that you are somehow above it, you are already on your way to it. So when you look at the grandeur of creation and you look at the awesomeness of God's special revelation in His Word unto salvation, it drives you to, to, to worship and to bow down and to think of all the horrific possibilities and to cry out and say, Save me, O great God of highest heaven, from this my hope is in you and in you alone. And then the most familiar words of the psalm in verse 14, he concludes with this. And he's, he's coming full circle here. Notice how we begin with the heavens declaring and now what we have is the Davidic declaration and response. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of the contemplations of my heart let what I echo back to you, O God, be acceptable before you. Not inappropriate, not unacceptable, but may it please you, may it get there, and may, by the grace of the greater David, have an aroma before you that is pleasing to you. And then he identifies him point blank. O Yahweh, the one who is my rock and the one who is my redeemer.
You notice how everything is pointing back to God and everything here is giving us what we need as believers in the new covenant to point us to Jesus, the one who is our rock, the one who in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, calls upon the wise to build their house upon him like a foundation so that when the gales and the elements of nature come, it will not fall, but it will stand. Take your position there in that unshakable and immovable place and the one who is the Redeemer, the one who has purchased us with His blood as we come to this table. We're reminded of that very thing. The one who buys us back. The one who squares everything. The one who makes everything right takes that which is lost and causes it to be found. That which is imperfect and perfects it in order to prepare it to meet the Creator and to be accepted by Him and brought into His company eternally. A benevolent gentleman went south some years ago. This is a story told by the late William McAllister in the 19th century to purchase a slave. And he returned to the north and he said to the man, you are now free. You can go where you please. But the slave replied, I will stay with you. Supposing he was not understood, he again said, you uh, are free to go wherever you please. And the man replied, I will stay with you. You bought me. You paid the price for me with your money, and I shall stay and serve you. I do not wish to go anywhere else. And the great theologian William McAllister said, So it is with me. I have been bought with a great price, and I do not wish to serve anyone but Jesus. And that, dear friends, is what Revelation is all about. That on November 10th, 2019, we can take this ancient song and have it drive us Christward. Because our rock and our Redeemer has paid for us with His own blood. And we ought not desire to serve anyone but Him. May we pray. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We would say to you this day, here are our hearts, O take and seal them for thy courts above. Lord, be with us now as we come to your table. As our host, we ask that you would graciously again vouchsafe to us all of your mercy and all of your grace for the living of these days, that we may be found faithful and that we may serve you truthfully, passionately, that we may look at what you have made and hear what you have said, and that we may respond with words and actions that will be acceptable to you for his sake. Amen.